You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2011 film, Source Code. So, we, the beginning of this film, we follow this man. He wakes, sort of comes out of something. He wakes up, and he's sitting on a train, and there's this woman that is talking to him, and she seems friendly with him. They seem to know each other, but he has no idea what he is going on. He claims to be a uh, soldier named Coulter Stevens. Yes. And but the you, there's a license in his wallet says that he is a man named Sean Fentress. Fentress, and he does he's he, he's completely out of you know disoriented has no idea what's going on, and but eventually after a few minutes the train he's on explodes. There's a bomb going off, and after that he wakes up again. And it looks like he he's in the wreckage of a helicopter no, or it's a some plane. kind of a pod. A pod. Some kind of a high-tech pod that he is in. It's a bit like a... Uh, I think you're right. It's it's a, a bit like the cockpit of a helicopter. Yeah, because he was a helicopter pilot. Yeah. I'm just talking about his... He was on a mission in Afghanistan. He says the helicopter went down, and now he woke up, and that's where he is now. Yes. And he's there. He wakes up on a screen... And then there is this woman. She is a Captain Goodwin. Yes. She's trying to orient him and tell him that he's... She sort of tells him that he's in this sort of simulation. And he says the bomb went off and she needs him to find the bomb. Yeah. So the second time he goes back into the simulation, she tells him he has eight minutes. Yeah. And he goes back. He's able to find the bomb. But then the it explodes again, and he wakes up again back into the same area. Right. And through eventually through this, I mean, it's very Groundhog Day. He goes through a number of times. He basically then he figures out that this is something called source code. Now yeah. the main science of it is that the brain activity is supposedly it stays active eight yeah. minutes up yeah. to eight minutes after the death through so through this they're able to recreate the because this uh this was a terrorist at- attack on a train in chicago yes and he's able to link up with this guy named sean fentress they have some sort of wavelength i'm not i don't know yeah, exactly it's, the it's not very well explained yeah. right but, but basically he's yeah. able to re it's a simulation where he's able to recreate these final eight minutes yeah and he has to try they're getting at this to stop these further attacks from happening so they need to not just yeah. figure out where the bomb is but find out who the bomber is mainly so they can catch him and arrest him yeah and not only that but he is trying because he thinks he's on he's stateside so he needs to get in contact with his father who he hasn't seen in a while and he's trying to figure out what is what's going on with him and Eventually, he finds out that he was listed as killed in action during a helicopter crash in Afghanistan. Yep. 
And so eventually he later finds out that he is being held on life support. And this, you know, pod thing is sort of his brain kind of making sense of his surroundings. They're using his brain mm-hmm. uh, connection with this Sean Fentress. So he's really, this is all just in his brain. It's using his brain activity, but he's mostly on life support. And they're using him for this thing called Source Code. And this Captain Goodwin is working with a Dr. Rutledge. Yes. So eventually, through these series of simulations, he you know, he also grows close to this woman named Christina, who seems to know him as Sean. They've been together times on this train ride. He eventually finds out that the terrorist is a man named Derek Frost. At, and so it's see they've it's they've succeeded at the end he's made the big you know they've captured him they stop further attacks from happening but he keeps thinking because he ha- every time he wakes up he has these brief little images of him and Christina and they go to this famous Chicago monument called the Cloud Gate you yeah know, this big orb looking thing yes and he says you know he even though he's they tell him that you know you can't no matter what you do, you can't save anybody on this train. It's already happened. You know, they're not going to, you can't save them. But he's trying to get Goodwin to say, I want to just put me in one last time. And then ta- he doesn't want to, because they want to keep using him for source code for further things, but he doesn't want to do that. And so she agrees to put him in one last time. And then after that, it manages up, take him off life support. So he goes in one last time. He catches Derek. You know, he, uh, finally is able to, you know, go on a date with Christina. They seem he kisses her, so they're all happy and together. And then he goes and stops Derek Frost and call, forms the authorities and stops the bomb, defuses it, so he's now c- captured and the people are saved. And he, you know, and it's eight minutes up, and he think it's freezing, and she takes him off that support, but then he snaps out of it, and it's still going on. Yeah. He meets. He goes in and these visions of him and her at the go to the cloud gate, and then he sends this email to Goodwin saying that this isn't just a simulation; that this um, is a way of setting alternate, you know, universes. So this alternate world is, yeah, you know, and this alternate world is set off. Now he's going to be the Sean person, and yes. in this world, the bomb never happened at all. Right, but he still sends it to Goodwin, saying that this is showing like this is even better than you thought it would because it sh- it can stop things from happening and yes. not just stop things in the future. Yeah, and, and it's I haven't you seen you've you uh, show this in your class. Yeah, right? I have, and, and I haven't seen it since yeah. it came out. So this came yeah. out ten years ago. So this is the first time in ten years I've seen this. Yeah, and it's still pretty good. I, I yeah. enjoyed this movie. It's, it's a good one, and it. It uh, it allows you to play with the notion of possible worlds, right? Because as you describe it, all I think it's purposeful in the script here as well. As you describe it, it ends up being a case where they have inadvertently discovered a, w- a way to, I'll put it this way, to send um, Coulter Stevens' soul into the body of another person, right? And it's ambiguously described by Dr. Rutledge, Sometimes he says things that make it sound like he he's, he he basically has a multiple universe view of things, but at other times he seems to be saying no, it is just a simulation, and you know as, as realistic as it seems, and as convincingly as convincing as it seems that you may be jumping off into alternate universes, that's not what's happening, and that's why you can't do anything about this, 
right? But he's ambiguous. He says a couple of things, and he throws in some jargon about quantum mechanics and mm-hmm. <laughs> the brains being of uh, Fentress and uh, Stevens being similar enough in some kind of, I would assume, um, quantum mecha- micro-quantum mechanical way to allow this to happen that makes you think that he, you know he's holding out that possibility. But uh, uh, it's clever for that reason. It's it's very mm-hmm. clever for that reason, and if if you don't kind of keep track of the uh, keep your mind tracked on the fact that in the end it is a multiple universe story, it can be easy to get confused by the end of the film uh, because uh, it seems to be the case kind of uh, if you're not paying attention that. Uh, um, uh, Goodwin has has had some 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 lapse of memory and unable to remember the train of events. Well, you have to keep in mind that the Goodwin at the end of that film is a Goodwin in an alternate universe, and that the soul of Coulter Stevens has moved from our universe into the body of Sean Fentress in that universe and realized what's going on, and so it dawns on him, well, if I send her this message in this universe... Uh, in essence telling her that she and her universe and me from mine but having been transported over to theirs we've worked together to prevent this thing from ever happening in in the in her universe um if we uh he, he he's he's cognizant enough to realize he has to send that message and it's kind of amusing at the end, too, because you, you see Rutledge, he's very concerned with continued funding for his program. And the very success of the program has got uh, that universe's Rutledge worried that they're not going to have uh, uh, any kind of opportunities to prove that the program can work. And You see him kind of worrying about that at the end. But he's saying our opportunity will come as he's combing his mustache. I love that scene. And uh, um, that's the way it, it, it ends. And it's neat because, but it does have interesting kind of follow on questions because the, the technology is basically in that last universe. It's basically um, allowed Stevens to kick Sean Fentress out of his body. And take yeah. it over. There's Poor a, Sean Fentress. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of questions I do have because part of me does wonder if maybe this wasn't an alternate and this is just the final fantasy dreams of Stevens yeah. right before he passes that he, okay, I've say, I get the girl at the end. I saved, I saved the bus. You know, I've, you know, I get out of the source code. I don't have to do this over and over again. It was wondering if that was his last brain or if they could, but I, it is. It, it's a possible interpretation, but I think the more likely interpretation, he as he has actually moved into Sean, Sean Fentress in, in a neighboring universe. The neat thing about this is uh, kind of implicit in it is, you know, we live in, in just one universe and there are, as it were, several parallel universes either side of ours that are very similar but not identical. And each one of them carries, in essence, a twin or a copy or a clone of each one of us. And in each one of those universes, I guess it's the case that Coulter Stevens and Sean Fentress share enough neural structure 
to make this kind of thing possible, it, which I, I guess apparently is transportation of soul between, souls between bodies, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, that's what's neat. I, so I, I read it realistically. And the other yeah. part of me wonders if in that first universe, it's when she turns off the life support for Coulter Stevens, if in that universe, source code is now done. Like, they can't use it again, otherwise they're going to have to try to find somebody like Coulter Stevens, and that might be a very long process. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question, because you do you do hear uh, Rutledge worrying about that very thing. Although a little earlier in the film, I forget who he's talking to. I think it's, at, yeah, it's after the success in that particular universe where uh, Stevens has managed to stop uh, or catch frost, and they they've stopped the follow-on attacks. And I think Rutledge is talking to the president. I'm not sure on the phone and being congratulated. And then he hangs up the phone, I think, and he says to somebody there, "Well, we've got eight or nine other possible candidates for source code." Um, again, I think there's a studied, purposeful ambiguity there to kind of reflect the the uh, uncertainties of uh, actual use of such advanced technology. So one On mm-hmm. one hand, he's optimistic. Yeah, I can do this. On the other hand, he's got to be conservative and, and uh, uh, expect the worst and assume that Coulter Stevens is the only one, right? And that does set up a very interesting ethical dilemma uh, uh, on the part of Goodwin. She has to decide given the potentialities that are there for using Coulter Stevens for future missions uh, like this. Um, and despite the fact that he has not consented to any of this, yes, um, it's still a question of whether or not she's willing to risk the uh, saving of potentially millions of lives in similar episodes for the sake of respecting Coulter Stevens' autonomy and his right to determine the course of his own life. Um, she makes that decision that uh, his rights outweigh the possible utilitarian uh, benefits of keeping him in that position. And it raises an interesting question about the beginning of the film, because if you think about it, it is pretty clear from what transpires between her and him after the first iteration that he's been through some training and they use those memory games with the cards yeah. and a, a memorized script that he is supposed to respond to and you see him kind of coming to and starting to automatically respond to these things as if he's been trained for quite some time and memorize them right so that raises the question is this actually Coulter Stevens first mission that is a good point you know and even rat because he takes a while to remember what her name is yeah right and then he realizes your name's goodwin and she never introduces herself before that right so he's he's already he's already been introduced to her he's apparently not been introduced to dr rutledge who very grudgingly over the course of the film informs him of what is going on in his case Right, uh, but he doesn't want to tell him. Yeah, and, and after they were after the success of the mission, he was just planning to wipe his memory clean. Yeah. So uh, maybe there has been other ones, yes, or at least simulations, because this 
supposedly the big first success they've had. Yeah. So thinking there was tests and simulations, and after they get that done, they wipe his memory clean. Yeah. And and if they had wiped his memory clean, and if it's actually possible to do so, uh, as it were, giving him almost perfect uh, uh, amnesia after a certain point in his life, and apparently even before that point, it takes a little while for him to remember that he had been in Afghanistan, right? If they could wipe that much. But they don't want to wipe too much because they want his military training, right? Yeah. Um, but the ability to wipe the most recent events perfectly, then you could reuse him over and over and over again and probably also be able to wipe away the trauma involved in having to do this. Can you imagine living through a... a a train exploding with you on it multiple times, uh, the memory of that would necessarily be traumatic. And at some point, you would run up against emotional burnout and uh, just psychological burnout in general. Well, if you're able to wipe memories, you wipe that too. And it does, I think, again, the movie purposefully does this. It raises that question. How many times has he been through this? And... uh, uh, is there any threshold above which this is unacceptable? Uh, of course, the, the obvious answer to that is it's probably unacceptable the very first time it's done because mm-hmm. he is totally in the dark about his fate. It, it does. The movie does raise that question of how long a soldier is supposed to serve because in real life we even see him at the very end. He's lost, he's lost the lower half of his body. I mean, at that point... Realistically, he's done his. He's gave his body. He's done his service. Yeah, he should be. You know, he shouldn't have to serve anymore. But here he is. There's even he's just you know using his brain. It comes off as very exploitive. Yes. And Rutledge, you know, he, he gives him his speech. Well, if you can't do this, there's a lot of soldiers who would be glad and would step up in line. And then he asks Rutledge, "Have you ever served?" Yeah. So it comes off as this company is exploiting the service of the military and the soldiers and saying even after grave you know serious wound serious injuries they still we still need to use them and you know rutledge uh, belies his own point of view in what he says uh yeah you're probably right there would be several soldiers that would be willing to do to be put in this uh this capsule and kept kept their brains kept alive so they can jump as it were into the bodies of others and and conduct counter terror campaign or, or operations. Sure, if you asked them, fully informed them, and gave them their opportunity to choose whether or not they were going to do that, I think that's that's what Stephen should have said uh, to that, and. The, the the secrecy is not necessary in order to get the manpower. I think you would have enough people that would be willing to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. But you've got to inform them uh, beforehand, either upon enlistment, probably not then, but upon uh, their being recovered and put in life support. Somehow jump into that simulation or whatever it is that's going on and say, look, here's your situation. Uh, and we'll we'll honor your wishes. What do you want to do? Right? Yeah. 
And uh, as to why they didn't do that in the first place, uh, that question often arises in class, and, and sometimes the, the argument's made that... Uh, they don't want to take that chance thing that since this is a, this is a terrorist attack... They feel that we just we can't if they refuse and something ba- another attack is going to happen. And how long are we going to find we get somebody who will give their consent? So we just got to do it regardless. Yeah, that that's one the thing. Clock that's is said. ticking. That's one thing that said. The other thing that said, which I think uh, has some uh, kind of real world implications when you think of some other historical events that have occurred, is. Uh, the fact that if you do that, um, there is some sort of a risk of leakage occurring, um, the information about the program getting out. Because, you know, especially if you think that he's jumping into this world's Sean Fentress, maybe when, when he is in Sean Fentress's body on that train, and he's fully aware of what's going on. Something snaps. He gets off the train. He doesn't fall on the track and get killed by the train, conveniently enough, that one episode there. Mm-hmm. So he survives. Or he gets shot and killed by Derek Frost and the other one. Well, but then he can get out and, and tell the press or tell somebody, by or maybe his dad. Say, hey, Dad, this is what was going on with me. The whole program gets exposed at that point, and then it becomes less uh uh useful right because you would think terror organizations in the enemy states would start to do what they can to defend against it or they would try mimicking it which is a nightmare in itself right uh, kind of similar to nuclear pro- proliferation yeah. right that sort of thing so all of those considerations factor into possible argue- arguments you can make for maintaining the secrecy of this program um and you can imagine if the scriptwriters had decided to create more dialogue here. When, by the way, I don't think the movie suffers for the lack of the dialogue in the argument. This is a it's short movie. Good. It's barely an yeah. hour and a half. I don't think they needed to do it. Mm-hmm. It works in this case. I know we've had some movies in the past that were the ethical dimensions were not explored as much, and it kind of suffered. For some reason, it works with this film, though. You get just enough of it. In that yeah. in that uh, uh, tension between Goodwin and uh, Rutledge on the one hand, and Goodwin and Stevens on the other, they they have some pretty uh, interesting uh, ethical tensions going on there. So it works. Yeah, and even like one thing I notice is the actual motive of why Derek Frost is doing this. It's a very bare bones like you know, typical movie terrorists, like, oh, from the ruins, we create a better world, yada, yada. That's, like, literally his only sentence. Yeah, yeah. That's, and you don't need it. Like, I was perfectly fine yeah, with that. that's fine. That's fine. Because it isn't, it, that would be going off on a tangent, Yeah, I think. It's, it's all you need to know is that he really, he really wants to do this. Yeah, and he wants right? to keep on doing it. Yeah. yeah. A series of them. Yeah. And we were talking about, you know, some real life basis now, obviously, something like this, like with the technology, this is definitely in the realms of science fiction, but it does remind me of certain cases of, you know, taking these soldiers and doing experiments on the most famous one is MK Ultra, where they were exposed to LSD, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, that was a CIA program. Yeah. 
and uh, they 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 uh, experimented on civilians and military. But the, the the program where there were more military people were involved was this Edgewood Arsenal. Yeah, and that uh, was that not was LSD. The US Army. It was exposure to chemical. It was several things. Weapons. They right. did also experiment with oh. LSD and some other mind bending drugs. And the 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 idea behind the research was to try, or the initial impetus was to try and find some kind of sort of chemical means to overcome people that were resistant to, resistant to interrogation. But then it kind of ballooned, as it often does with these kinds of things, into uh, experimentally exploring the limits of sanity, um, possible, um, as it were, antitoxins for psychoactive drugs and things like this. Uh, uh, horrendous, horrendous experimentation that was going going on uh, under the auspices of the U.S. government uh, from the 50s until 1971, I think it was. And then the church committee um, uh, uh, kind of opened it up to public scrutiny in 1973. And, uh, yeah, so you see these kinds of sci-fi scenarios and think, well, things like this can't happen in the real world. Mm -hmm. Well, they did in that case, and it's an interesting historical case in that uh, kind of the impetus behind the creation of uh, the Edgewood Arsenal study and MKUltra to some extent was a very, I would say, substantial and justified worry about uh, the abilities of um, the communist world uh, in their efforts to find ways to make prisoners of war malleable and uh, open to interrogation or open to possible mind control. Um, there, there was a lot of worry about that after the Korean War, after some prisoners of uh, war were uh, very cooperative with the, with the Chinese. It was the Chinese running the program over there. So they had a worry on their side. Well, we've got to we got to have some kind of prophylactic against this and prevent it. Um, so that, that that gave rise to these programs. Uh, and, you know, in the long run, I, I, I think the concern was a bit overblown. I don't think the Chinese abilities were that good. Yeah, and the end make, result makes you think of the Manchurian candidate. Yeah, and, and nothing like that. Actually, they were not capable of doing anything like that. And uh, in the end, after all of these experiments with LSD and other substances, uh, the CIA and the Army came to the same conclusion. Uh, these things are not, as it were, wonder drugs. Uh, they don't they don't end up being useful in those ways. Although in the end, of uh, uh, having run these experiments, I know of at least one death that occurred because of it. They they dosed one man who was already depressive anyway, and uh, had been involved in the research and had second thoughts about the morality of it. Somehow or another, he got dosed, and he jumped out of a window and killed himself. Mm. And we were getting back to sort of these alternate timelines. So we have the very uh, ending when he's taking over as Sean. Now I'm wondering, even if it is this happy ending, he's got to live the rest of his life (laughs) as this Sean. So Sean's a history teacher. So how he... 
he's a helicopter pilot. That's a different job. So he's got to learn how to teach. Not only that's the only person who really he can get away with knowing is Christina. He's got, I mean, that Sean has a family. He's probably got parents and brothers or sisters or aunts and uncles. Oh, yeah. And And he doesn't even know where he, I mean, okay, he probably knows, he might know where he lives because he has his license. But that's, he's got to really adapt and i just wonder if it's it is a happy ending but i i how is he going to be able to adapt to that well and you kind of wonder about christina's reaction because i think by this time she knows he's Coulter stevens right because he's told her at least once or twice uh well those were the different in that last one he doesn't that's true so he's got to inform her of that as well and uh i think that would at least be shocking you know, mm-hmm. uh, apparently in every universe where Sean Fentress and Christina exist, before this incident, they were pretty damn close. So she's in for a shock if she doesn't already know. Um, when he tells her, look, I'm not Sean. I actually pushed Sean out of his body. Really wasn't my fault. I'm part of this program in an alternate, but mm-hmm. a parallel, but close universe. Um, so he's got to tell her that. And he's also got to think about uh, not only Fentress's family and his close relations, but his his dad, right? His dad in this universe. Um, he does probably, give him the call, and they reach some sort of closure. But yeah. will he ever be tempted to further reach out to him? Yeah, yeah, and 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 then the dad would be put in a very odd situation once he if he's told the truth, because he he could theoretically go to uh, beleaguered castle. And see the body of Coulter Stevens, right? With, as it were, one of the Coulter Stevens souls, the one in his home universe, so to speak. And he could have standing right next to him Coulter Stevens' soul from that neighboring universe, who is in almost every respect just like the one in the life support system, but in Sean Fentress's body. So in that universe, this dad now has two sons <laughs> and and there would be no basis upon which to pick one or the other as being quote the real one because every emotional uh, every aspect of the person that uh, would account for the emotional attachment is still there so he may think twice about approaching his his dad in that universe mm-hmm. he may just decide no I, I don't want to put him through that um even though in that universe, if he does so, chances are, because of Rutledge's secrecy, that uh, that dad will go on thinking his son is dead. When, in fact, he isn't. Neither one of them yeah. is dead. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.automatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Mm-hmm.